Hello, I'm Jonathan Charles, and this is Pocket Dilemmas, where Kerry Law and I tackle political and economic questions which are facing the world today. What are Pocket Dilemmas? Are algorithms biased? Will robots take away your job? Do you trust cryptocurrency? How do we bridge the pay gap? What is the future of poverty? This is Dilemmas at EBRD.com. You know, a euro today is a euro tomorrow. Its value is stable. The value of Bitcoin oscillates wildly. Uh, Of all things, I will not call Bitcoin a currency for this reason, but also for for another reason. The euro is uh, backed by the European Central Bank. The dollar is backed by the Federal Reserve. Currencies are backed by the central banks or their governments. Nobody backs the Bitcoin. Well, you were just hearing there Mario Draghi, the uh, head of the European Central Bank. Will the euro today be the euro tomorrow? He seems to think so. Should we put all of our trust in the currencies that we know? Dollars, the euro, the pound, even with all those financial crises out there. Brexit, trade wars, which may or may not be happening. Uh, Well, let's uh, tackle what Mario Draghi seems to be suggesting there. Let's explore that question. The real currencies that we've been used to so long or the cryptocurrencies? So our dilemma today, what is the future of money? Is crypto a miracle or a mirage? Plastic, paper, tokens, what is it all worth? Exactly, Jonathan. So, you know, in my own life, um, I just recently got married. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Um, You know, and so we're in that fun process, and I say that it's an expensive joking. Oh, very expensive, also really confusing. And so my husband and I are kind of combining our portfolios and trying to figure out. That's not, what modern young people do today. <laughs> they combine their portfolios. Very responsible of us. Yes. Um, so we're trying to figure out not only what to invest in, but where to invest. And now we're trying to also think, like, what currency we should maybe put some of this money in. And we're quite young, so we can tolerate some of this risk. And I briefly, and very silently, because my husband would not go for it, um, briefly contemplated, you know, mm-hmm. what about something like Bitcoin? Should I throw some money, you know, at, at Bitcoin? because there have been big gains, but also some losses. But there's no way he would go for it, so I didn't even mention it. But yeah. I presume you want to stay married. So. Yeah, exactly. So it's risky. And there's this great example of, you know, pizzas. So in, in 2010, um, you know, this guy tried to figure out, okay, is this, is this really going to work? Can I really buy something tangible with, with this Bitcoin? And so he started buying these 10,000 Bitcoin pizzas. Guess how much they're worth today? How much? Each 10,000 Bitcoin pizza is worth approximately $12 million. <laughs> I can see the pizza maker disappearing off into the sunset, singing and uh, retiring, probably. Exactly. So uh, apart, apart from that, there are lots of other examples, aren't there, of, of cryptocurrencies out there and crypto lands which have cryptocurrencies. Yeah. So have you heard, actually, of a land called Liberland? No. Okay. Well, listen to this clip. My honor is to introduce you to Liberland, one of the smallest countries yet a country based on principles of liberty. We founded Liberland only three years ago and we already have half million people that applied for citizenship. And our task is nothing smaller uh, than to utilize the latest blockchain technologies in order to build a truly free society. So this was Vít Yidlička, uh, the president of Liberland. It's a micronation whose official currency is actually Bitcoin. <sighs> So it's the small piece of disputed territory on the western bank of the Danube between Croatia and Serbia. Just let me remind you, by the way, you are listening to Pocket Dilemmas, the podcast which explores the political and economic problems which are shaping our world. You can review us on iTunes. Email us at dilemmas at ebrd.com. 
Follow us on Twitter, of course, uh, and the handle is at EBRD. That dilemma today, what is the future of money? Is crypto a miracle or a mirage? Plastic paper tokens, what's it all worth? We do have some guests. Stuart Trow from our own treasury here at the EBRD. And guest number two today is Zainab Gurgush, a research associate uh, at Imperial College uh, in London, the business school there. So what's your quick take, your headline take on these issues? Stuart, you go first. Okay, thank you. Um, well, cryptocurrencies are certainly a fascinating and, to an extent, a natural development from from the internet. And to that extent, they probably got as much a claim to legitimacy as any other currency around at the moment. But that's not saying much. <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. But yeah, and and with that in mind, you know whether they will actually last it, it is uh, clearly a concern. But I, th- I think the main thing to take away from that, though, is that the blockchain technology that underlines it is going to be something that will last and has already had practical applications. Uh, I also agree that for me, the more interesting part is the technology behind cryptocurrencies and the ideology and concepts behind it. And obviously nobody knows whether cryptocurrencies will last. And I'm I'm a very risk-averse individual myself personally. Uh, But I'm fascinated by the technology and I'm trying to see how this can improve actually existing systems and how this can make a difference to the world. And for me, it's not an either or or question. It's more how could we coexist. This is Pocket Dilemmas, the podcast which explores the political and economic problems shaping our world. Review us on iTunes, email us at dilemmas at ebrd.com, follow us on Twitter at ebrd. What I've seen uh, or reading and hearing is that uh, it's definitely those economies where, where the trust might not be a very uh, much presence among the uh, investors. So they're trying to just find the ways of getting uh, hedged or diversified the, the risk of, of specific currency. So this was Ermas Peeker, the founder of Funderbeam from one of the EBRD countries of operation, Estonia, the world's first startup marketplace powered by blockchain. Yeah, and he told us that he sees crypto being used more in countries with lower levels of trust in the official financial system or where local currencies are underdeveloped. He also explained how he sees the future of crypto. Despite the fact that we are using blockchain and uh, we're one of the uh, first uh, who actually showed that uh, it can be used for other than actually uh, exchanging the uh, the currency or crypto assets. So we use that and still using it that for, for securities, which now actually is becoming a, a major trend. But if you look at the ICOs, uh, so these are the initial coin offerings and uh, why the boom is now over, uh, one of the reasons uh, obviously is that uh, regulators woke up at some point and realized that, okay, guys, but you're dealing with securities. So uh, what, what you're pro- promising here is actually underlying uh, right to the uh, to the company. And uh, although uh, very much jurisdictions uh, may react differently, but, uh, but nevertheless, uh, and another aspect which uh, took quite some time uh, for the regulators to understand is that if those ICOs uh, issues were actually listed on one of the crypto exchanges and, and were traded, then those exchanges should have actually had also a securities uh, trading license themselves. So because they're not anymore dealing with some uh, alternative uh, uh, cryptocurrencies, but uh, but uh, it's actually securities, which is very much regulated industry. Well, we've got Stuart Trow with us from our own treasury here at the EBRD. Uh, Stuart, what do you think? Is crypto a useful financial tool? Uh, obviously a new one, or is it? Is it another bubble? Is it going to go away? It's potentially useful, but it's got to overcome, as I see it, four 
hurdles really one is that it's got to be scalable because at the moment cryptocurrencies are a very small part of the global financial system uh, the one the other is to uh, get on top of the cost of doing transactions because they're they're actually quite high and uh, as Kerry was saying about the pizza example back in 2010 uh, the cost of buying a pizza using a cryptocurrency these days could easily be more than the cost of the pizza itself so so obviously that has to be addressed also, the commercial relevance. Uh, businesses have got to see that it's worth their while going to the trouble to set themselves up to be able to trade and uh, accept bit, uh, Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies. And the final element is the is commonality to all currencies, trust. So the point that Ermis raised about the strengthening of local currencies, why is this important? The role I see more for Bitcoin and blockchain technology in smaller, less developed uh, financial uh, countries is is to actually help them to jump a generation in technology. So, so where there isn't a, an established banking system, uh, this can help them sort of come to the party, if you like, and get more people banked, more people involved in the system, in much the same way as you saw with sort of telecommunications that, you know, countries where there wa- weren't hard wire, copper wire, uh, telephone systems, they were able to jump a generation with mobile technology. We see lots of rocketing around in the trust in these cryptocurrencies on a day-to-day basis. I mean, I certainly remember a few months ago reading papers saying at one moment it was a record high, for example, with Bitcoin. Yeah. The next moment it seemed to have collapsed. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, you only have to sort of follow the headlines, the latest raid on uh, Bitcoin exchanges and uh, people having their wallets uh, ripped off or what have you. That, uh, uh, And you do see the value of Bitcoin responding very quickly to those sort of incidents as well. Exactly. Um, I came across this fascinating article about how Bitcoin really got all this notoriety. And it talked about how when WikiLeaks kind of, you know, when they, they released all those documents in 2010 from the Iraq war, a bunch of people were really supportive of that. And and PayPal was funding um, WikiLeaks. And then, of course, the U.S. government, you know, shut that down or at least encouraged PayPal to freeze all their accounts. And then naturally, uh, in the cryptosphere, you had people asking, well, why not Bitcoin? Why can't Bitcoin then um, fund something like WikiLeaks? And actually, behind the scenes, the founders of Bitcoin were saying, no, no, please leave us alone. We are not ready for all this scrutiny. Um, and then obviously, the train had left the station. And, you know, we are where we are today. We're Bitcoin has funded things like Silk Road and other nefarious purposes. But, you know, I just I think about what what would have happened if Bitcoin would have funded something that was more mainstream? I mean, something actually really positive could have come of it. The technological advantages of the currency is the fact that if you buy something the other side of the world, it can be settled virtually immediately. That's a major plus. And, you know, even if none of the current uh, altcoins or bitcoins uh, su- survive the, the, you know, the test of commercial reality, the technology, the advancement in uh, financial transactions almost certainly will survive that. Do we see real investors, I mean, institutional investors, investing in cryptocurrencies? Because that's a big test, isn't it, of of whether these things uh, stand their value? Yes, yeah, and that—that's the—that's the, the acid test, if you like, because at the moment, from a regulatory perspective, it is quite difficult for institutions to to get involved. Very few of them, if any, I can think of, that can actually buy Bitcoin directly. There are. Uh, 
they, they're more forced to look at alternatives, say, like investing in investment trusts that themselves invest in Bitcoin. So very few can deal directly in Bitcoin. So we're the first generation, you know, born in the 80s that we won't be as wealthy as our parents, or at least that's what stats say. Um, and it's, you know, for many reasons, but one, because wages haven't really kept up with inflation. And of course, this is just a Western example. In the East, it's actually different. I can see that people lose faith in the government controlling these these currencies and just in monetary policy in general. Um, you know, governments make money from inflation and uh, people like me and my generation were seeming to maybe lose out. So, you know, what's what should we do about monetary policy and equality? And could something like the blockchain and Bitcoin maybe help? Uh, well, I think the major problem with the fiat currencies, you know, the dollar, the euro, the pound, everything we're used to in that respect is the perceived lack of fairness. And I guess you were alluding to that when you were talking about monetary policy, for example, you know, I'm a gentleman of a certain age, and uh, I've had a chance to build assets. And uh, you know, I've got a house and a mortgage and what have you. And the current easy monetary policy conditions have been brilliant for me. My house has gone up in value multiple times, and the cost of my mortgage has fallen a lot. And with younger generations never having to being able to sort of to benefit and build wealth in the same way, obviously there's a perceived lack of fairness then. And if that's associated with the fiat currencies, Bitcoin as an alternative could be attractive for younger generations. Here next to me is Zeynep Gurgic, a research associate at Imperial College London Business School. So Zeynep, uh, crypto could in theory replace currency as currency is just a social agreement of trust, right? Yeah, I mean, for me, any money is now uh, just a coordination game and a trust game. So when I mean what I mean by that is that if we all believe that there is value in something and we all agree that it's a good medium of exchange and that it will be able to store value and we can measure it with a, as a unit of account, use it as a unit of account, then it can be money. Now, there's nothing conceptually stopping cryptocurrencies for being able to perform these actions. There's conceptually nothing wrong if we all decide that that's really the case. Now, fiat currencies are not that different, actually, right now, because they are not necessarily backed by anything other than the central bank. And if you trust the central bank, of course, you know, you trust the fiat currencies. But if you are, if you are in a country in which you now do not trust your central bank or your government anymore, then the fiat currency in that country is not that necessarily that different than cryptocurrency and it provides a really good alternative for citizens of countries like that. It's much harder, isn't it, though, to Zainab, to trust something you cannot see. Uh, and if I think back to the history of money, you know, originally, for example, certainly under the Bretton Woods Agreement was all backed by gold. You could actually go and visit the gold exactly. and make sure it was backing the currency. You know, with, with existing currencies these days, as I, say, I can physically see it. The difficulty with all these cryptocurrencies, it's quite a leap of faith to trust something that exists on a, a computer system uh, and, and that actually could easily be wiped from that system. Then what? But most of our money, actually, uh, you know, thanks to millennials as well, that happens in a digital form. Uh, <laughs> happens in a digital form, 
So in the sense that like, you know, for the new generation, there isn't that concept of like, ah, it does not mm. exist. I don't hold mm. it. So I'm not going to be able to use it. I mean, you know, you go to a shop and like if there's a millennial in the shop as a shop assistant and you give them some coins, you just get like really <laughs> weird looks rather than, you know, <laughs> why aren't you using your like payment, like your phone or your like. You're going to have a cryptocurrency. You need to have this digital ledger. Is that right? Yeah, you need to have this distributed ledger. Mm. So you have to keep the record of transactions in a distributed manner. So in very simple terms, just so I understand it, in the old days, it would be like going to visit a big book in which was written in the book, which everyone could agree, the current state of an account, for example. So you know that what's written in the book is a true account of what exists. Is that is that really a, a digital version of that? Yes, it's a digital and a distributed version of that. So, okay. I mean, we all use Google Sheets, right? Mm -hmm. We have a transaction of records and we can all, ex okay. like, you know, update it on live terms that it's done and then you cannot really change back to the state of the uh, state of the consensus. Okay. In so theory. In theory. Okay. But presumably it's also open to fraud as well, just as any system of is Of course. Open to I mean, everything is like, uh, uh, it can be fraud, you know, it's open to hacking, it's open to different things, but it's actually one of the most resilient and secure ways of like keeping data mm. so far. Okay. So in that sense, it's more resilient than other systems. So question to both of you. Um, if you had to make a case for crypto, what would it be? And Zainab, let's start with you. So two things. Uh, for me, it really offers an alternative for those countries that did not have any kind of form of trust, and then they decide to control the system themselves. But more promising, actually, for me, is the second aspect, is what it can do for micropayments, and what it can do for industries or countries where micropayments are very important and very useful. For example, in content creation industries, right? So we have these like uh, content creation that happens like, you know, we read a nice article, we listen to some music, and we really don't want to enter like our credit card information for every single cent that we want to send it to someone. And because of that, we don't end up sending this money. But if we can actually have a very scalable and very good system that this facilitates this, then it can actually, we can uh, redistribute wealth and resource in a much better way. So this is like very promising for me. The second thing is like micropayments are very important in certain continents, right? So for example, in Africa, uh, people didn't have bank accounts and then when M-Pesa came, like, you know, it revolutionized the whole continent, right? Especially like obviously Kenya. And when, you know, M-Pesa came, like, you know, it decreased transaction costs so much that like, you know, it's really helped communities around there. Now cryptocurrencies or the technology behind it offers a new alternative. People are working on it and that's the real true potential for them. So. Absolutely. And, well, and it's especially since, I mean, in a developing country, more people have phones than they have bank accounts. Um, exactly. So this is also why it's really prolific. Stuart, what about you? But let me sort of perhaps look at the sort of more developed uh, world uh, aspects to this because I, to be honest, going forward, I'd be gobsmacked if global central banks didn't adopt a lot of the technologies behind Bitcoin and uh, alt currencies and because the, the direction of travel of fiat currencies has been to try to put transactions more and more on the system. So uh, we use a lot less uh, cash now, notes and coins than we used to. And that's kind of brought microtransactions into the realm of 
digitization if you like and at the same time we've had the pushback against very large denomination uh, notes sort of like the 500 euro note is uh, they're going to stop production of that in april i think and long ago the 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 americans decided it wasn't worth having a thousand dollar bill because of uh, all the nefarious activities associated with that so we've got this direct you flow if you like towards every transaction we do being on record and cryptocurrencies are a uh, just a natural extension of that. Pretty interesting. All right, a re- quick reminder, by the way, of our dilemma today. What is the future of money? Is crypto a miracle or a mirage? Plastic, paper tokens, what's it all worth? It looks uh, to me as though the world is going in a certain direction, but we'll see. Well, I think, first of all, we have to understand that blockchain is just one of the tools in our technology toolbox. So the key question you should be asking to determine whether blockchain is a useful solution to your problem is, first of all, do you need to store data at all? If not, you should explore other alternatives. Blockchain will not be useful in that case. So that was Yelena Madir, our chief counsel and main expert on blockchain. She explained kind of what you need to consider before you choose to use blockchain. I think blockchain is most likely to deliver significant value in situations involving uh, business needs that require reconciliation of data. So let me give you an example. In trade finance transactions, you have many stakeholders participating, such as exporter, importer, banks. In addition, blockchain is also likely to deliver value in situations that require auditability. And what I mean by this is where record keeping uh, of immutable records is required. Uh, For example, it could be used in food safety, uh, in tracing food from its origin to your plate. Uh, And since blockchain data is immutable, uh, you'd be able to trace the transport of food products from their origin to the supermarket. Another area where auditability is required is voting. So blockchain offers the ability to vote digitally, but it's transparent enough that any regulators would be able to see if something were changed on the network. Yeah, blockchain, we were talking about it just a few minutes ago. It really is a buzzword in technology right now. And we've been exploring a little bit why cryptocurrencies and blockchain go so closely together. So just, I guess, to the two of you, I mean, it's hard to have one without the other. If you're going to have a cryptocurrency, you need to have this digital ledger. Is that right? Yeah, you need to have this distributed ledger. Mm. So you have to keep the record of transactions in a distributed manner. What, What is the real difference between that digital distributive ledger and, for example, me going on an app uh, into my bank account, uh, which surely is also a ledger which I've agreed with my bank is the true state of affairs. How does it really differ from the old-fashioned ledger just uh, distributed in that way? You don't keep the information in one server. You keep the information in a very, like, all around the globe and, like, different nodes, and then it becomes much more resilient and much more secure. And plus, you know, it makes like, you know, if you trust your bank, great. But then if something goes bad with the bank, like, you know, this basically like a one way trust, whereas this one creates like this type of distributed trust and a multi-dimensional trust in the system. And that's why it's different. Uh, well, I, I, th- I think the thing about perhaps the way to look at it is that at the moment we're trying to replicate with uh, blockchain and digital currencies stuff we already do. And perhaps the way we ought to be looking at it is sort of like the internet, for example. You know, with the internet, it's not just a means of communication like a telephone or something. It's actually spawned 
things that we didn't used to do before. Social media is of the most obvious example, but there are much more subtle ways ways we've been able to, you know, buying software or stuff like that. You can just download it now. You don't have to do anything uh, uh, weird and wonderful in that respect. So basically with blockchain and whether cryptocurrencies are part of this revolution, they really need a sort of killer app, something to sort of make it relevant to to users and to commercial interests as well. So more and more, you know, as people start to use blockchain, there's concerns about legal aspects and the cornering of the market. Um, and there was this great study actually put out um, by Princeton in 2018 that actually said over 80% of mining, so Bitcoin mining, is controlled by six actors, five of which are in China. Now, when you when you look at Bitcoin mining, I guess let me explain that for a second. Um, so Bitcoin mining, it's people all around the world, as you said, Zainab, who have computers who, who mine uh, for Bitcoins, which means they validate uh, transactions. And every successful transaction, it adds a block to the blockchain. So you have 80% of the mining happening with six actors, five of which are in China. Wouldn't that kind of indicate that China has kind of cornered the market? Is this also a concern? Yes, I mean, with proof of work, that's what happens with mining. So you have different types of like governance mechanisms in like blockchain and distributed ledger technologies. And Bitcoin works on proof of work. And now people are coming up with like new governance mechanisms. So it's it doesn't necessarily have to be proof of work. It could be something else. There are like a lot of new mechanisms that are being discussed. Is, is there a governance issue That could resolve, issue here? like that could potentially resolve this. Is yes. There, is there, because I mean, if I think about traditional currencies, you know, there are always governance issues. A, a government doesn't have enough money, they print money, you get inflation. What's the Bitcoin equivalent of that? You make more Bitcoins, you can flood the market. Is, is that a governance issue around Actually, that? I would say for the, like any kind of cryptocurrency or blockchain or tokens in general, this kind of, we this concept we call tokenomics, the main issue of 2019 is going to be governance. And, you know, there are really new solutions that, you know, obviously uses game theory that says, okay, like by using reputation or by use making sure, you know, we look at like which kind of staking you put into the system, you can vote and you can govern. Uh, you know, you have these like self-management systems, but people are still exploring. There is not like one perfect answer yet. Stuart, what are your thoughts? A lot of these uh, cross-border issues have already been raised with companies like Amazon and Google. You know, it's be it's proving incredibly difficult to nail them down just in terms of tax, let alone sort of privacy regulation and stuff like that. And there's always the suspicion that privacy regulation is, is part of a sort of a darker trade war as well, if you like, because Europe isn't especially... Uh, uh, hasn't got the scale that perhaps the US and Chinese uh, uh, tech giants have got that they're more interested in um, privacy for that reason. Uh, the other issue about the governance is specifically of Bitcoin. It's very much a 51% situation. If you control 51% of the Bitcoin out there, you can effectively change the rules. The story of economic life. Let yeah. me remind you, you're listening to Pocket Dilemmas, the podcast which explores the political and economic problems which are shaping our world. Review us on iTunes, email us at dilemmas at ebrd.com. Follow us on Twitter, of course, our handle at ebrd. So now let's try and draw this discussion to a conclusion. 
Our dilemma, if you remember, what is the future of money? Is crypto, cryptocurrencies, are they a miracle or a mirage? What about real money? What's it all worth? So let's try now to, to get that conclusion about the future. Zainab, let me start with you. How do you see the future? What's your conclusion in this debate? My conclusion is that the technology is very valuable and I think even central banks are going to use this technology eventually, uh, in at least in a way that that suits them. And it's going to be very important for uh, certain sectors or certain countries where micropayments are very important. Stuart, do you agree? What's the future? And you know, what's your conclusion from this conversation? To an extent, there's a excitement around sort of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies because almost like they're a subculture type thing and they're, they're sort of free and independent and all the rest of it. But I think eventually they'll find themselves subsumed into the mainstream. And, uh, you know, as we were saying earlier, I'd be really surprised that the central banks don't see some advantages to themselves of uh, being able to track all our movements a bit more closely by having more financial transactions actually within the system. So, Kerry, we've had uh, quite a long chat about this, and I think it's a generational thing. That's, that's what I've concluded, that I think your generation is much more inclined to trust cryptocurrencies than mine. I still like the physical knowledge of physical money. I mean, I do, too. I, I love having some cash in my mm. pocket. Um, but as we kind of discussed, most of my transactions are done online anyway. So maybe it is a generational thing. I don't know. It's is all I can take away from this conversation is that I am still no clearer on an investment plan of where I should put my money, if it should be, maybe some of it in crypto, some of it not in crypto. Um, but I have faith that our generation will figure it out. <laughs> well, somebody's got to figure it out. Uh, thank you very much to our guests, to Zainab, to Stuart. Thank you as well to all of you for listening. Uh, we'll see you next time. Goodbye. This podcast was brought to you by the EBRD. We'll be back soon with a new episode. In the meantime, send us your feedback, suggestions and ideas on dilemmas at ebrd.com. And remember, reviewing and rating us helps others to find us. Until next time.